Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series that's curated by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of banking. I'm your host, Michael Avery, as always, steering you through the ever-shifting story of finance in this series. So whether you're a banking professional, a financial enthusiast, or just someone who simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance, you're in the right place. Now, some reckon the South African banking sector is increasingly moving towards a marketplace without boundaries. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means things like digitization. It means uh, it's going to be shaped by a vast new business model, digital players challenging the status quo and driving unprecedented levels of innovation. And I think in response, we've seen uh, some of the major players uh, continue to pursue large-scale transformation programs. Uh, these are the established banks, the incumbents, the ABSAs, the First Rands, the Ned Banks, the Standard Banks, and of course, I've got to add the Capitex in there, all looking at improving that holy grail, and that's called customer experience. How do they do it? Well, globally, I don't even think all the digital banks have really delivered on some of the high expectations that were raised at their launch of uh, of being able to revolutionize the way we as ordinary consumers interact with our banks. But it's increasingly clear that those able to develop a clear segmentation model and, and differentiate themselves have achieved success in some of the most competitive banking markets uh, across the world. Well, my next guest is uh, here with almost 30 years now. In fact, I think bang on 30 years experience if your LinkedIn CV is anything to go by. Uh, current CEO of FNB Commercial, Gordon Little. Welcome to the podcast. Michael, thanks very much for having me. And you're right. Yeah, I was just reflecting on on that during the last couple of weeks. 30 years in banking. Um, started back uh, in in kind of uh, 94. So yeah, it's been an interesting path. Um, Your career must mir- well it mirrors the uh, the democratic era of South Africa, which uh, which is quite something. And looking at that CV. I just want to take listeners through it. You started out as head of treasury operations in in ABSA Group. You then were PMO head at Liberty Group. Uh, you then were head of financial services at Rand Merchant Bank, uh, stint at CFO level at FNB, and now currently at uh, CEO of FNB Commercial. So it's a career trajectory that showcases quite a diverse range of experience from treasury to financial services, and now as the CEO of, of the commercial arm of FNB. Growing up in Vitbank, it seems a world away from the coal mining town. How did you get involved in finance? Yes, it's a, it's a very interesting story. So, you know, I ended up being schooled at, at Whitbank High, and I guess when you choose a varsity career, you're not entirely sure what what you wanted to do. Um, and I guess I picked the accounting field when I went to to Vits. And my first real experience of of, of accounting was getting a, a vacation job at one of the small accounting firms in, in Whitbank. And if I remember correctly, I think it was called Fonsale and Key. Fonsale Incorporated. And I got one of those jobs, uh, Michael, where they give you a box of check stubs uh, and, uh, and ask you to write up a cash book. Uh-huh. Uh, I must say, it was, it was quite a sobering experience because I, I thought to myself, you know, if this is really what this kind of accounting or CA route is about, you know, I probably picked the wrong path. Um, and that swiftly led me to look for a, a, a vacation job in Johannesburg. And I was very fortunate to get a vacation job with uh, KPMG as a VAC student, which I had at the end of my second year of studies, at the end of my third year of studies. And that eventually led me into uh, my articles with, with them at that point in time. 
So that was that's really how it started. And you know, I'm a very proud Bits alumni, um, and kind of I've spent a lot of my career, you know, I guess within uh, ostensibly what is ten blocks of Bank City, uh, in the centre of Johannesburg. And I make the joke to some people that uh, I started at Carlton Centre, and in the 30 years I managed to progress probably a little more than a kilometre and a half to the west. <laughs> it's a it's a fascinating story that I, I must say um, I, I can definitely empathise with one of my first jobs straight out of university was with David Gleeson and he put me in the corner to capture daily sends announcements uh, from uh, directors dealings to uh, big M&A transactions into an Excel spreadsheet for their dealmakers online engine and I thought to myself Avery what have you gotten yourself into here I want to be a financial journalist I want to tell the big stories and there I was as a as a data capture but things change very quickly don't they now um in that three decade period you've obviously seen a massive evolution in the banking landscape um, how have the different roles that you've had from treasury to CFO to now CEO of FMB commercial really shaped your perspective on the banking industry in South Africa? Yeah, so Michael, it, it, you know, it's interesting. I got to do a lot of uh, quite different things early in my career. So to your, to your point, I got when I started, I started in, in the treasury business at, at ABSA. And it was at the time that they just brought five banks together. Um, so you know, there was a lot of learnings from figuring out how you consolidate the flows from five banks and kind of, and then in the eyes of the the regulator kind of make sure that we're running all of those banks, you know, both on a consolidated fashion and, and independently until we until we got rid of their original roots. And, you know, the one thing you learn about that is kind of complexity is something that you need to embrace in our world. And slowly, if you start to understand how a bank works, you're so much better equipped over your career to understand strategically what levers are actually linked to real opportunities. Um, and certainly working in the treasury space taught me that, you know, you've got to be on top of like huge amounts of cash flows. You've got to understand payments. You've got to understand the opportunity of, of kind of the capital markets. And ironically, all of those lessons learned early in my career are equally applicable to a lot of the things I see today. So that, so the way that money moves in terms of big transactions ironically is, is almost the same as the way your transactional flow would work if you tapped your credit card. On a device so that foundation i must say stood me in great stead and then the second issue is in my early days i got to manage quite a big team quite early uh, and i was very fortunate to be surrounded by some very generous people who gave me like very good feedback i guess when you're a leader in your mid-20s uh, you know, people talk very openly to you and say and treat you on that basis that oh gordon you're probably too young to realize you've just made a mistake so i'll give you some let me give you some guidance on how you might do it differently and I think that foundation technically and from a leadership perspective, I mean, there was very generous foundations to build a nice career, certainly in the banking space. Were there any particular mentors that stood out for you, as you, as you say, giving the, uh, the, the young pup the, the space to go out and chase the car and catch the wheel and sometimes make those mistakes? Uh, are there individuals who, who stand out in shaping your career, Gordon? Yeah, it's interesting. I think at every opportunity. So, you know, if you take the, my career journey at ABSA, I ended up working for a very seasoned professional by the name of Doug Anderson, who'd been in banking for a number of years. And I learned some leadership dexterity from, from Doug in those early years. He was very, he was obviously, sorry, often quite pointed with his input. 
And then quite on the side of some of those meetings was was very generous in helping offer some direction to his pointed pointed uh, input in the meetings, you know, more privately. So I, I benefited a lot there. I then had the opportunity to go and work, uh, you know, after I left Oxford for for MBS Borland at the time. So it's maybe a little gap in the the CV as you played it back. But there I worked with uh, a guy called Hannes van der Westen, who who may have bumped into in his days at uh, at Truffle yeah. Asset Management. He was a superb leader, and you know there was one very fond memory that I have when I started there, and we were talking about the division of responsibilities. And he took me into the dealing room at uh, at NBS, the NBS building in Kingsmead, and said, Gordon, uh, I think we should talk about how we split responsibility. He said, see the people that are sitting inside this glass room dealing? I'll look after them. If you could just make sure that the rest of the folk that are sitting on the outside, you know, like ops and tech and all the rest of it can do their job, I'm sure we're going to work very nicely together. And that kind of vote of trust on running big parts of business, uh, you know, was kind of enormous. Um, and then over time, I worked for various people, uh, you know, opportunity to move into Nedbank on the merger dates so of people like Brian Kennedy were, were around, uh, and Al Bossman was my direct boss at a, at a point in time. And then when I moved to RMB, I had a great mentor on a guy called Mike Field, who was the CFO at the time. So I've been very, very blessed with some very strong voices and leaders to learn from uh, over for that 30 year time frame. And I mean, you're mentioning some of the talent that we've produced over the years in uh, our banking industry, which is rated very highly globally. And it, it's a key pillar of institutional strength, our banks and our financial system. Um, but I recall when I when I spoke to David Buckham and Monocle at the launch of his uh, book about why banks fail, that banks, while being at the very heart of the way we've structured our society, and you mentioned trust, we trust them implicitly with the fruits of our time, our money, and all of that. I don't think many outside of the banking industry realize how inherently risky they are and why the first rule of banking is always say no. Um, and I mean, there's a good reason that bankers have earned this reputation of being fair weather friends, because if you if you make a loss in banking, you know, on a back of the matchbox type level, you've got to do a deal roughly 30 times bigger to recoup that loss. So, I mean, you've really got to understand a bank's balance sheet. And I, I mention this because often I feel that the banks in South Africa uh, are sometimes unfairly criticized for being too fair weather. And they need to open up a bit more and, and lend more freely in order to get small business growth going. I mean, how do you view it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Mike, when you, when you work in banking, first of all, you must never forget this anchor of your responsibility to the depositors. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, in many instances, you know, people forget that it's your money and my money and your mom's money and kind of extended families that have trusted us you know, with their deposit base. And there's a level of prudence required in terms of how you manage the placement of, you know, of, of those deposit funds. And, you know, banks are famous for, the, for their capabilities to transform maturities of deposits and lend into, into structured assets and create, you know, opportunities for, for, you know, corporates and individuals to borrow. But it's a delicate balance. And I, I'm not sure that everyone starts with uh, let's call it the collective mandate of a bank in mind. They tend to start with their perspective of what they are requiring at that moment in time. So if, if you pivot that to your point around the importance of being able to lend into businesses that are growing, 
It really is about making sure that as a bank that we have an appropriate weighted risk mandate that says, if you're lending with depositors' money, there must be there must be a level of circumspection that we are not, you know, going to squander that money and and end up creating a level of instability. Where there's loads of opportunity though, is to make sure that we apply the right kind of capital to the right kind of opportunity. So, small businesses with with evolving borrowing needs with an established track record, sound exactly like what a bank would lend to. Startup businesses who require levels of, let's call it venture or adventurous capital, are probably areas where a bank has got a role to play in trying to find access to that capital for those businesses, rather than taking that depositor's money, which we hold so sacrosanct and pushing it towards those opportunities. So we could work, I think, more work to do matching business interests with the nature of capital, uh, that we have available. And I think, as, as certainly as first round, we've got lots of available resources outside of that lend category that maybe we don't make enough of mm. uh, when we get the market, yeah. Mm. Uh, but I, I still believe that there's a great deal of education that uh, needs to happen at a policymaker level, uh, especially about that point you make, that, that the bank's first responsibility really is to depositors. Uh, and we've seen uh, in the US how fragile that trust is and with various bank runs and SVB last year, the most uh, talked about among them and how quickly uh, a bank run can happen in a digital age where depositors get a whiff of, of their, their money potentially being at jeopardy, how quickly that can undermine um, the, the strength of that institution and the risk therefore for contagion. But I, I want to stick with this idea of you know how we uh, help SME development in South Africa. And you, you've got a lot of experience in what would probably be to a more a venture side of lending, to high growth scale up SMEs through the Vumela Fund. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you just share more how, how such programs really contribute to uh, firstly, sustainable economic growth and job creation. But what, what are the lessons that you've learned in taking um, this type of proactive stance in supporting more high growth type SMEs, which would you, which to use your phrase earlier, would probably be more of an adventurous capital type, you know, funding for venture capitalists or angel investors. You've as a bank said, right, we can actually play a role here. Yeah, so Michael, I- so maybe a little bit of context on on Vermela. So I've I've sat in Vermela as a trustee for 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 many years, and Vermela's mandate is that of impact. We're trying to make sure that we we invest for growth opportunities, measured through kind of uh, job creation, you know, a level of uh, uplift in you know, those businesses turnover and their their long term sustainability. And you know, with with the advent of the Vermela Fund, probably going back over a decade. We learned a lot of lessons in terms of which businesses would actually go from, let's say, good conceptual ideas, good growth concepts to actually thriving businesses. And we put capital into ventures where, in some instances, we never got them to scale and we never got them to necessarily reach their full potential. And then there were others where we invested funds and we've seen significant growth in, in turnover, revenues, and, and job creations. And the, the Vermela Fund itself went through a number of iterations. Uh, the first one was when uh, the First Round Group injected its first tranche of over 100 million rands worth of capital into it. There was a second iteration where we worked very closely with the Jobs Fund uh, to deploy funds into small business. 
And we were on a third and fourth iteration now where we're looking for other opportunities to take, let's call it more risk-centered capital and steer it towards you know, that end of the market. But you did ask the question on you know, what have we learned? And I guess there's three or four big lessons that I guess are worth repeating. The first one would be that not every small business is destined to be a big one. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about that a little bit later. Sometimes it's the recognition of the entrepreneur, the original founder, uh, in terms of what skills they have and don't have, which is the catalyst for change into the next level of, of business. And then it's really important that everyone's got a bit of skin in the game. Uh, so someone with, with no investment or no potential upside is far less likely to be deeply engaged in, in some of the, the, the hard work that, that is required to take a business from relatively small beginnings to, to, to larger ones. And then I guess the other side is there is a limit to what you can do as a small venture-centric fund when businesses do grow. So the, the, I guess the upside is there's always a potential to pass some of these businesses into, into private equity hands or to have them bought outright. And there are a couple of little examples where we've actually seen that uh, over the years. And that's an ecosystem uh, approach, certainly for the bank. You know, there's R&B Corvest that, that you could then match mm -hmm. those jockeys with. Um, I, I want to come back to your point, though, about not every small business can be uh, a big one and uh, i'm sure every entrepreneur must start out with uh, with aspirations of being uh, a big business i'm sure there are a few who are just happy to remain the the corner uh, hardware store for example uh, how how do you uh, apply a framework to determine which are those businesses that can scale that what are the characteristics or the commonalities if there are any or is it all just down to business model and jockey so I, I think there's more to it than just business model and jockey. I think you know you'll find, and if you reflect on what's happened in South Africa in the last the, the last decade, sometimes there really is that that opportunity of being in the right place at the right time. So if you think about some of the uplift in terms of sustainable ventures, whether they were linked linked into kind of water supply chains or kind of renewable energy, et cetera, there are a lot of people who would have had the benefit of perhaps catching that wave early and ending up with a market that grew well beyond inflation and offered opportunities that, you know, had they been in a slightly different space, wouldn't have come. But I, th I think, you know, the, the importance of the jockey is key. Um, and also it's that recognition that sometimes the jockey needs a trainer or, a, you know, an additional element to ensure that their business grows from, you know, simply being what they can control themselves, Michael, to something that actually requires uh, let's call it professional, you know, leadership and management to take it to the next, uh, the next stage, and and I think that's that's some of the reflection that if you talk to some of the real kind of, let's call it renowned entrepreneurs. So if someone like Robbie Brosen kind of, we had the opportunity to engage with him earlier this year, and he was talking about the fact that the Nando's business could perhaps never have become what it did if he hadn't at some point, you know, had some of his external investors point out the fact that. It, it was time for the next stage. And if yeah. they wanted to internationalize that business, they probably needed some professional partners that could allow them to go from, let's call it a growing, very successful brand to an international kind of everyday name.
And you mentioned a guy like Robbie Brose and and, uh, and you know uh, some some very important backers in the the Entovens as well. But there's a high EQ there. Is that something that an entrepreneur has to have in order to be able to? Uh, many entrepreneurs are very creative. They like building. When it comes to uh, scaling up and professionalizing and putting systems and processes in place. That's not really what fires entrepreneurs up. And so to recognize when that stage is to let go and in order to expand and scale that you're probably not going to be the CEO anymore. Is that an important characteristic for the entrepreneur to have that kind of high EQ of of when to be able to to stomach that kind of conversation? So I'm I'm not sure it all comes down to EQ, but I mean, maybe just to tell it by way of a a story. So, you know, in our own enterprise development framework, we didn't necessarily apply our minds to the type of people that we were engaging with. And and in subsequent versions of the Vermelophone, when we've been doing screening, uh, we've actually brought forth, you know, a, a kind of a level of psychometric inputs to make sure we understand the nature of the person that's running, running the business. And we find that that awareness, both you know, as an investor and as an owner, is something that helps catalyze, you know, I, I guess, the right level of conversation before mm. any investment starts. Mm. And it, mm. it's, it's ironic, Michael. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you would do with an employee if you were hiring them. And I guess it was only late in our own development of, of, of you know, our investing into some of these businesses that we applied that same, that same standard uh, to the owners of the business. So so that would answer the first part of your, your question. The second part around, are people good at embracing processes and, and and kind of how they need to formalize their business as they grow? I think there's a lot of very good development partners that we've interacted with, in fact, in the broader market that actually teach that discipline through the, a lot of the development programs that are offered to small business that are indeed scaling. You know, so how to go and make sure that you you formalize your finance functions, your HR functions, your marketing functions, you know, as your business grows from, let's call it a one or two folk kind of organization, you know, to a larger uh, enterprise. And then things like uh, tax compliance, you know, the formality of financial statements are all things that accompany that maturity as well. You know, if you're going to try and attract external funds mm. at a point. So I think you'll find a lot of really good programs available in the South African context who are focusing on pieces of what I've described. And a lot of the best investment uh, theses are often framed by understanding the people as well as the market and the product that you're investing uh, through or with. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned that three-letter word, uh, finance is full of too many TLAs, but tax. And we've got the uh, finance minister's budget coming up next week. Um, uh, If if we were to breathe life into, and I recall the president, one of his first statements when he first became president after meeting Jack Ma at one of his investment conferences uh, was to say that entrepreneurs in South Africa are our everyday heroes. And he was obviously talking very generally and broadly from the, the micro merchant on the side of the road uh, all the way up to your high growth gazelles that we, we think can 10x and, and hopefully 20 or 30x and expand internationally. But, you know, SMEs need all the support they can get. They are everyday heroes. How can the finance minister uh, create a better enabling environment? Do, do you think we need to start thinking about uh, different ways, different stratified ways that SMEs 
are regulated from a labor or a tax perspective, that kind of thing, what would you be giving if you were edifying Enoch as your advice? That's a so that's so that's a, that's a tricky question at a very interesting time. Uh, so, so I think if you if you're sitting in the finance minister's shoes, you're trying to catalyze uh, the formality of the catch net of of uh, you know the fiscus, because you want to make sure that you've got as many formal businesses uh, kind of contributing to the growth of the fiscus. At the same time, you're trying to make sure that you've got kind of policy certainty. So I guess we'd look to the minister for. Uh, policy certainty around, you know, elements like public-private participation in in a number of zones. You know, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's energy, and 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 so forth. And then, I guess, if you're sitting as a small business owner, you're trying to want to make sure that there's less friction to take you from, let's call it, ideation to, you know, formalizing, uh, you know, your business as you move forward. So, I mean, I guess if we had a couple of magic ones, what would we really hope for? We'd love that you know, elements are around corporate administration or business administration are kind of available and improved. So, so you know, could could we get SIPSI to be a firm referential point for all business data and available kind of, you know, to to, to individuals? I think that would be enormously uh, helpful if we could if we could just move that forward, just step by step. And ensure that each of the banks and each of the financial intermediaries could could access it and help businesses navigate their way through it. I think if there was a little more understanding from all parties around the importance of finding ways to catalyze entrepreneurship, and not all of that is about putting capital into business, it's about mm. actually teaching and educating people about the complexities of starting a business. Um, and we see, you know, great uh, achievements when there's a lot of assistance programs where people can, you know, get exposure to what it takes to run a small business, you know, either through workshopping some of those concepts or actually, you know, getting mentorship from from individuals who've, who've worked through that space. So anything from from the minister that would embrace helping in that environment. And then I guess, you know, the other thing that we'd we'd really like is. For all parties to arrive at some of these conversations as trusted equals, you know, and everyone, you know, can can move into a meeting on the basis that we all arrive with the right intent, because what's good for SA is growing businesses across all dimensions, whether they're small or big, you know, that's good for as as well as local, provincial, and national government. So yeah, that yeah. alignment to say that if we could all be looking after things would give, you know, kind of catalyst to growth. Uh, and remove some of the bezel around, you know, some of the legislation that's perhaps become difficult and time-consuming to navigate. I think mm -hmm. we'd end up in a in a slightly more. Uh, how could I put it? I think there'd be a little more velocity that'd be available, and yeah. it's a fine balance. Yeah. You don't want to. No one wants to diminish regulatory oversight to the point that it's valueless. But at the same time, you want to make it as easy as possible for business to do the right thing. Yeah, and uh, I mean the the lessons there. You you've touched on so many, but it sounds like you were describing the approach uh, that Rossi Rasmus and Jacques Ninaber took with the the Springboks to to get that alignment to to bring the best out of such a diverse group of of human beings. And and look what they've achieved going going back to back. The potential is is there if we 
harnessed and, and empowered in the right way. Just as we reach uh, our last few few minutes here, and I'm going to have to have you back on at some stage, Gordon, to talk a little bit more about um, payments, because I think that, you know, the payments uh, infrastructure is is so exciting. There's so many fintechs in the space. There's lots of debate around blockchain, cryptos, uh, you know, how you, how you partner in this space. But just broadly, I'd like to get your concluding thoughts on uh, where we are in the cycle. And, and uh, I saw a recent S&P Global report saying that, you know, deposit growth might slow and come under pressure this year because the economy is underperforming. Uh, given where we are, interest rates, um, the, the non-performing loan ratios might stay sticky, although we are expecting rates to go down. How would you characterize the outlook for the year ahead for FNB commercial? And how are you preparing to navigate some of these challenges? Yeah, so I mean, other than just offering the, the, the sensitivity that First Trend finds itself in a closed period in the exact, this exact moment, let me give you a broad view on how we see our clients and how we see prospects going going forward. So we're very fortunate at FMB to have a very diverse book. So we've, we bank almost a, a million small businesses through the, the commercial bank. And I think there's a subset of those businesses that will do significantly better than their peers. So it's those that find themselves in industries where, you know, there's strong demand and there's there's a, a level of inflation that, you know, will move through those markets and get passed, you know, into into value chains. So some of those, you know, would 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 benefit from growth. We we have the benefit of of banking an overweight element of of domestic agriculture. And I think, you know, much as there's been many concerns about, you know, weather and some of the, the headwinds there, I'm very upbeat that that as a sector will continue to grow. And then I think in many of the conversations that you'll have in, in, in the next few months, Michael, we've been very fortunate to be able to position ourselves at this nexus around how do we help our clients solve for things like energy needs? Yeah. And, you know, we, we bank a large element of, of, of some of those value chains and just connecting the dots more effectively um, is going to allow us, in my view, to kind of help clients kind of access to power and those individuals who have access to either infrastructure, you know, kind of or, or distribution in some instances. So I'm very upbeat about clients in that space. I think if you've got a, if you're if you're a small business that directly faces the consumer, then I think the next season or two is going to be tough because that consumer pressure is absolutely real. Um, and certainly the you know the pressure of inflation and high interest rates are something that almost everyone in South Africa is feeling at this at this juncture. So I think those mm. are going to be the the dimensions. But make no mistake, you know entrepreneurs in South Africa will be taking advantage of the pressure on some of their smaller counterparts, as well as the opportunities for growth. I mean, certainly I I get to see a lot of our clients. And they are shrewd operators. They understand the market and the ecosystem they function in. And in many instances, uh, competitors look to each other when times get tough to find a way to kind of either expand or extricate themselves from from, from businesses. And I would expect the top jockeys, I think, as you put it earlier, to continue to find opportunities. I like the potential for small and medium enterprise. Uh, I think there's still lots of dexterity. And when you talk about owners in that space, the owners are the shareholders. So the ability to move is not constrained by needing permission from the broader market. It's actually defined by, you know, a lot of those small businesses' ability to divide very quickly if they want to pivot, if they want to change, 
which contracts they choose to embrace and so forth. And I think that's the big differentiator for yeah. the the commercial business that that, that we see. The yeah. bigger you are, the more tricky it is to turn your ship. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just echoes what um, what I was hearing from uh, Hendrik de Toy at 91 recently. He was just sharing some interesting insights. Uh, he, was, he was sitting down with some of his old Investec colleagues and they were saying, you know, the, the, the really shrewd operators are seeing a lot of opportunity in areas where, um, for example, certain state services are falling over and are now actually exploiting those opportunities um, quite quite profitably. Uh, but the uh, you know what does worry me is is the pressure on the middle class. Just anecdotally, yes. there are stories at Kuro schools where parents are unable to afford um, aftercare, and so children are sitting there after school until five o'clock until their parents pick them up. I mean, the, the middle class is under pressure. So uh, yeah, it's it's one of those. Just uh, absolute last question, Gordon. What, what's the biggest misconception about your job when you sit down and chat to your mom and she says, "What do you do, Gordy?" <laughs> so, I think you know there's a lot of perception that bankers are situated in a head office, uh, and I make the point that my best moments actually come from the engagement with clients and listening to their stories and their successes, uh, and sometimes you know the harsh feedback that they give us in terms of what we can get better. So I think the misconception is that you can run a bank from a static location. I think the fun, certainly, of my job in the last four years, Michael, has been meeting our clients and getting their inputs firsthand. And certainly, F&B clients are not shy to give you feedback uh, or praise. (laughs) Um, Certainly, like many people, they tend to start most sentences with feedback and then eventually close the conversation with a compliment. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm going to end with a compliment. It's been a great pleasure having your insights and your expertise and engagement with us here on the Monocle Banking Podcast. And uh, we'll have to have you back on again to talk a little bit more about uh, payments and some of the plumbing stuff, which is also really quite exciting. Gordon, thanks for your time. Cheers, Michael. Look forward to that. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast with Gordon Little, CEO of FMB Commercial, all the way from Vitbank to Bank City. Before we go, I'd just like to extend our gratitude to our growing audience for tuning in. Remember, you can find us on all good podcast platforms. Thanks uh, for listening. Until next time, don't forget to subscribe.